Hey, podcast listeners, this is Charles Chandler. This week it's episode 61, and we're talking about uh, programming the work of the organization. It's actually part one of a two-part series that we broadcast back in October 2016. And it's all about um, programming the organization and its work. And we talk about knowledge workers and manual workers and how to make them productive. Enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're up to episode number 36. The title is Programming the Organization. The title for this podcast uh, came from something I was reading in a book by Peter Drucker called Management Challenges for the 21st Century. There he was talking about knowledge worker productivity and how that was one of the main challenges of this century. And he uh, talked a bit about how in the 20th century, the main contribution of management was to make the manual worker productive. In fact, uh, he said there was a 50-fold gain in manual worker productivity in the 1900s. He pointed to Frederick Winslow Taylor, who wrote in 1911, the book called Scientific Management. Scientific Management was essentially about what uh, Taylor called task analysis and later task management and finally scientific management. Today we know that as basically industrial engineering and it was designed to break down the different tasks that were required in the production process and to basically study the manual process and the manual work to make it more efficient and to be sure that the tools that were being used were the best tools and the most most efficient tools. And by the way, Taylor had started out as a manual laborer and then studied manual work. And according to Drucker, he was one of the first, if not the first, to study manual work. So that's pretty amazing considering that, um, you know, going back to the Greeks and the Romans, uh, we had poets and, and others that celebrated manual work in song and in poetry. And yet they didn't really study manual work. They were only sort of glorifying its virtues, whether it was the herdsman or the farmer or what other type of manual laborer there were. In those times, the poems celebrated that, but they didn't analyze the productivity of the worker. And essentially, if you look at developing countries, the reason that poverty is high there is that essentially the workers are not very productive. They're not very productive because they're relying upon largely their own labor within their own cultural system. It was not until, let's say, the Industrial Revolution in England, the first and second Industrial Revolutions, that what the economists call capital, that is equipment, was brought to bear upon the process of work. And, for instance, we had the first steam engine was used to pump water out of mines. And, of course, later steam and mechanical power and water power, in fact, was used to... Actually, the first industrial revolution was with water power, and factories essentially had to be located along streams. This was in the 1700s. And so the factories were located in rural areas where the, where the, the water power was available by the running stream, 
And so we had mills and various small factories that then the water uh, wheel was turning, and then that was geared to turn the equipment within the factory, whether it be, the let's say, the millstone in the water mill, uh, where the wheat and corn and so on were ground, was ground into a flour. So that power was not portable. You had to locate the work at the point of where you could find the power. In the second industrial revolution, we had steam power. Steam power, of course, you could locate steam engine and feed it with fossil fuels, wood, and coal. But it was still not very portable because a steam engine was quite a big thing. But you could have certainly steam-powered factories, steam-powered locomotives, and take the mechanical energy and turn it into work, whether it be with a, a sawmill or a factory that was weaving cloth. So the productivity of the manual worker as we go into the 19th century and um, or into the 1900s, and Taylor begins to study it, by that time we had electric power, and electric motors are quite small and portable compared to steam, and they can be applied to individual work sites, individual work tables. Uh, so you can have sewing machines, you can have all sorts of very specialized equipment that can then speed up and make more efficient uh, the work and the worker together as they as they work in a, as a team. Uh, that is, the equipment plus the worker creates quite a productive system. So as we come to the end of the 1900s, the productivity of manual work is has gone quite far. And in manual work, the task is always obvious because we know what the finished product is supposed to look like. And we break the steps in producing the product down and the labor can be specialized. So basically we're taking an idea from the 1800s, which was specialization of labor, and that was illustrated by Adam Smith's pen factory. And we're adding a 1900 idea about task management and uh, task analysis, task management, scientific management, to cre- and, and then the, the power sources are evolving from water to steam to electric. And this is making manual workers quite productive. But now we have coming on the scene other kinds of workers that take a body of knowledge and apply that body of knowledge to the work. People like lawyers and doctors and engineers, accountants. These are knowledge workers that Peter Drucker talked about in his book. And basically the difference in the knowledge worker is that the knowledge worker owns the means of production, which is the knowledge and he or she takes it home with them every night. And if they don't come back in the morning, you've basically lost a, a valuable asset uh, that was adding to the production process. But the question is, how do you make knowledge workers productive? And what is productivity even in the case of knowledge work? And how should you compensate knowledge workers? Well, let's take a look at a typical law office, law firm, in which the body of knowledge is, of course, the law, and the lawyers probably went to law school. They graduated, they came out, they took the bar exam and hopefully passed, and so they set up a law office and practice law. But basically, in the law, you have two sides. You have the the prosecution and the defense. So you have lawyers working against each other. The whole idea is justice, the justice system. But whether or not the lawyer is productive is not really the right question. 
because over the course of the lawyer's career, he gains a reputation as he tries cases and acts either on the defense or on the other side. He wins some, he loses some. But there's a reputation. He has a reputation that grows over time. I would, I would argue that basically in the case of knowledge workers, it's really about the reputation of the knowledge worker and how well he does over time because he's going up against the real world. The outcome that he's looking for is to win the case, but the first thing he cares about is being hired to actually work on the case itself, and that comes from his reputation. So the amount of compensation the lawyer received grows during his career because his reputation is growing, and hopefully he's winning some cases and has a reputation for fairness and knowledge of the law. Let's look at the doctor in the doctor's office. The doctor is also applying a body of knowledge, which is perhaps learned from medical school, and he again graduates and becomes a licensed physician, sets up a practice, and starts attracting patients. It's his reputation, really. After he's had some patients and they go and talk to their neighbors, they either recommend him to their friends or, or not. But over time, it's really the reputation of the doctor and the satisfaction of his patients that grows the practice and amounts to increased compensation over time. But both the doctor and the lawyer are really operating within a system. If they set up their own offices, they have other staff that assist them, including administrative staff, nurses, accountants, and others. There's a specialization of labor there throughout that process. And so the doctor becomes productive if his system is productive. And over time, the profitability of the practice increases as reputation improves and as the number of patients grow. So knowledge workers really have to be working inside of a system. There's usually a specialization of labor. They have one side of the specialization, which might be the medical side or the legal side, but they're also working with others that help them to run the patients through the, the system, to admit them, to make them comfortable, to situate them in their offices, and to do some of the initial screening for weight and eyesight and other things before the physician himself or herself comes in to examine the patient. So knowledge workers are productive within basically a system that either they create if they're running their own practices or somebody else creates uh, in a larger firm. And again, we have high specialization because knowledge work is really all about teamwork and working with your colleagues to add value to the finished product or service so that the customer benefits in some way. So let's say we're in a government office writing a policy paper. The outcome of that policy paper or the end result is perhaps to recommend a new policy to be adopted by Congress. But whether or not that policy is eventually adopted, the ideas that go into the policy paper may have a future life, even if the policy paper, as it's written, uh, does not go on to be legislation. There's a follow-on effect for good ideas that have potential and that can gain traction in a wider audience. So the knowledge worker, whether it's, let's say, an economist, a financial analyst, an engineer, whatever, that's on the team that's writing the policy paper, they're adding value if the policies that they are recommending are 
uh, used at some point in the future by their audience. But whether or not to produce the policy paper is sort of a strategic move of the organization. And at the beginning of the year, there may be a list of policies that they're going to work on, and people are assigned to those different tasks, and they go off and, and do their work and bring back the finished product or an intermediate product. The value of knowledge work is really all about the outcome. The supply-side team that's producing the output, which is the policy paper, is taking various bodies of knowledge, whether it be economics or financial or whatever, or urban development in some cases, let's say, and as a team, they're working together to see how they can bring to the fore a recommended policy that then legislators can take and adopt and implement. But there's lots of different people that are adding and massaging uh, those ideas along the way. And so they're all adding value, and the system is there to winnow out the bad ideas and to put forward the good ideas, and then to eventually have them approved, um, let's say, by the legislator, legislature. So knowledge work is all about knowing what the outcome should be and working back to from that to the task. If we think of another case in, let's say, the inner city school where the teacher is trying to educate the fifth grade classroom, there it's the system itself that um, specifies the curriculum and the school facilities and the classroom itself. And is there's a team, administrative um, teachers group, uh, maintenance uh, workers, so there's lots of things that go on to create that classroom and that environment, and the teacher is acting in a role. So it's not just up to the teacher to pass the student or to teach to the student and have them learn enough to pass. It all depends on a lot of different things. How well prepared the student is to begin with from the previous grade, how willing the student is to learn, how conducive to learning the home environment is, and then how good the, the curriculum and the teaching process is. All of these are highly variable factors. So if something is not working, if the students are not passing, if they're not learning, it's not simply the teacher's fault. It's the system's fault. And we need to stop blaming the teacher and start fixing the system. So the question is, how do we program the organization? to do all of these things that need to be done, whether it's with manual or with knowledge work. The traditional way is for management to program the organization by setting goals and then to lead and direct the organization to fulfill the goals. The problem with that is the goal model will accept almost any goal that you throw at it, and um, whether they're smart goals or any other kind of goals. So you never really know that you have the right goal, and even if you achieve the goal, it may not really mean that the organization is effective. But think about another way that we've been talking about in previous podcast episodes. Instead of using the goal model, let's think about the outcome focus model, which is part of management by positive organizational effectiveness. There, the selection of goals has already been done for you because the goal of every organization is to be effective within its environment. Effectiveness within the environment means that the supply side is producing things that the demand side is, is using. So it's all about the causal chain. It's about the demand side response. And we look for certain demand side behaviors 
to verify that the causal chain for our products and services is effective. And effectiveness for the organization is basically about the portfolio of causal chains and how well they are working, each, uh, each and all of them. So basically, the organization, instead of being programmed by management, can be programmed by small teams of workers that know what the outcome is that they're expecting, and they work backwards to produce, let's say they're on one particular product line, they can add the attributes to the product that they know that the customer is is willing to buy. And the more that they are in tune with the customer and understanding the needs, over time they can modify the product in ways that continue to serve the customer, the group of customers, and keep them engaged. Also, for knowledge workers, if they know the outcomes, they can also work back to what has to be produced on the supply side and then pilot that product to see the consumer response. So I guess what we're arguing today is that the way to program the organization is not with the traditional goal model that management has been using because that's prone to error and it will accept virtually any kinds of objectives you want to use. The the outcome focus model using management by positive organizational effectiveness will only accept outcome level goals, that is demand side response goals, which then program uh, the teams working on those particular activities to be highly in tune with what's happening on the demand side. So in a, in a traditional organization, you're trying to convince management to modify their goals or their indicators uh, so that uh, you, can, you can serve the customer. But that's a very slow process and doesn't respond very actively to changes in the environment. When customers are needing different things, it's too slow to respond. But under our other system, we're talking about management by positive organizational effectiveness. Management has already given the team the responsibility of responding to the customer and to maximize their response. And so they have much more freedom of action. Top management then would act more as a banker to decide which initiatives should be funded, which new products and services could be funded, um, at least piloted, and decide when mature products should be discontinued and others can replace them. So when it comes to programming the organization and the worker, what we tried to do today is to suggest a new way forward, not only to make manual workers productive, but to make knowledge workers effective, because effectiveness is really what matters in knowledge work, and it's the reputation and success over time that really feeds back and determines whether the organization is successful in its environment and whether it becomes great. So greatness is really about occupying a niche. And as long as the organization knows what the outcomes are that it's trying to achieve and it defines those in terms of demand-side behavior, it's going to be quite in touch or closely in touch with its environment and it can adapt quickly to changes it may see there. Let me just leave you with one final thought. You know, it was Archimedes that said... um, Give me a place to stand and a lever, and I will move the world. Um, I would submit that the smartphone is basically the place to stand and the lever that Archimedes was talking about, because the smartphone is now essentially the remote for your life. By punching a couple of keys on your smartphone, 
you can activate servers in distant lands, which then will act on your behalf to conjure up all kinds of changes in the real world. So the smartphone is an entry window into doing the kinds of things, whether it's changing the world or improving your life. There is enormous power in your hand uh, if you know how to use it. A smartphone can be a time waster or it can be a productivity tool depending upon how you use it. So what we try to do today is to think a little bit about making organizations productive, programming the organization through management, and thinking about how productive the worker is, whether it be a manual worker or a knowledge worker, and what is the system in which we are doing all of this. Because the organization is essentially a system. It's quite an open system. It's open to its environment. And the knowledge worker is part of that system. So we're going to wrap it up today here. Thanks for being with us. It's great to have you along. Join us again next week when we will again consider organizations and their performance. But you can access all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Goodbye for now.